This is a Ranieri & Co. and Headline Productions podcast. What is the biggest scandal in Australian sports history? It doesn't assume the same point in history in my mind as I think it does for others looking back. You know, they had all the big guns out. You know, like, to, be, to be honest, this looked like a shit show. It's the 7th of February, 2013, and inside Federal Parliament House, some of Australia's most powerful sporting administrators are standing in a line. The findings are shocking and they'll disgust Australian sports fans. Well, it's the blackest day in Australian sport. Um, the Australian public hopes that Australian sport is clean. Today, we saw the underbelly. So it was in one of the, the rooms often used at Parliament House, the room that you see on, on the news most nights. Um, and there were, you know, a, a, a dozen or so media People. I do remember I was. I was in the office, in the Herald Sun office in Southbank. My sort of recollection of that is how uncomfortable those sports heads all seemed. Uh, look, to be honest, I didn't watch the press conference. Um, you know, I, I believe, and, and I still do believe, you know, we're innocent. The CEOs of some of the country's major sporting codes, including the NRL, AFL and cricket, have been summoned to Canberra. They're standing behind Sports Minister Kate Lundy and Justice Minister Jason Clare. And they're talking about a massive investigation into the use of drugs in our sports and links to crime gangs. On some occasions, organised criminals that have linkages to companies that work with the major sporting codes. We've heard a lot about the ramifications for two of the clubs most impacted by the announcement, NRL's Cronulla Sharks and the AFL's Essendon. We've heard about the impacts on the 51 players and their coaches. But what is the story behind that day? Was it a desperate misjudgment? Or a powerful stance with strong outcomes? Was that big announcement worth the price paid by so many? This is The Long Haul, and I'm Emma Murray. Today, we're looking at the blackest day in Australian sport. Loneliness is indicative of modern society. It affects everyone at some point. It's part of the human condition. Thanks to Medibank, We Are Lonely is a podcast that seeks to demystify loneliness. Follow the journey of four diverse 20-somethings on their search for connection. Young Australians have never been more lonely, yet loneliness is rarely discussed and often misunderstood. Season two of the We Are Lonely podcast is part of Medibank's 10-year commitment to reduce chronic loneliness in Australia. We are Lonely is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Search for We Are Lonely and listen today. It's such a complex story. There's so many different threads, so many agendas were being run, but I still don't think anyone really knows the full truth uh, of what happened. We're speaking to a government bureaucrat, a journalist and a player to get you a bit closer to that truth. Yeah, I'm Mick Warner. Um, I've been a Herald Sun journalist for too long, about 23 years, and um, done concentrated and focused on sort of the politics of the Australian Football League for about the last 13 or 14 years. And so obviously the Essendon drug saga was the big daddy of them all when it came to sports integrity and, and whatnot. Julia Gillard was the Prime Minister. She was behind in the polls. 
Um, within days or weeks, it was sort of suggested that it was a political play. Here's a big story that we can break, that we can tell the Australians about cheating in the, in the sports that we love. These are allegations you may have heard before. It was a brutal time for Labor and the media. Here was an idea. We're a sporting nation. Surely we'd love a government that fights to keep it clean. But one insider says that is far from the case. Um, my name's Richard Eccles. Um, I held the position of Deputy Secretary in the Department of Regional Australia, Local Government, Arts and Sports. Kate Lundy um, and the Prime Minister, in, in my view, acted completely appropriately throughout, at absolute arm's distance from the ASADA investigation. So it was almost an agenda without politics. Richard Eccles is well known in Canberra. He's a respected bureaucrat and he's passionate about sport. This is the first time he has shared his side of this story. It's always been very unpredictable. It's always been very ruthless. Um, the thing that marked that period of time out from others was just how rapid the changes were. Um, we had several prime ministers in a short period of time um, with Prime Minister Rudd, Prime Minister Gillard, Prime Minister Rudd, then Prime Minister Abbott. So it was a, a, a time of significant change and, and quite volatile. Did that add a level of sort of, sort of heightened stress and reaction um, no, I, I don't think it, it played a role in any of the issues associated with certainly sports integrity. Um, there was, of course, political um, commentary um, around motivation, but that's more as part of the standard cut and thrust of government and opposition interrelationships rather than any you know, fundamental problem with the directions but he would say that because he's involved in politics. Uh, my my independent assessment of it is that the Gillard government was looking for a win, looking for a big story to change the national conversation, and I think they felt that they had one here, and they did because no one likes to cheat. Oh, look, I, I think there was government, you know, trying to get um, points with the public, I guess. Uh, uh, my name is Nathan Lovett Murray. Um, I'm a proud Kundijamara Wamba Wamba Yorta Yorta man. Um, born in Haywood, southwest Victoria. Uh, been living in Melbourne for the last probably 20 odd years. You said nothing about your own AFL career. Yeah, I've also <laughs> played a little bit of football. Um, yeah, I was 10 years at uh, Essendon Bombers uh, life member, so pretty proud of that achievement. And um, yeah, sort of going down the path now of um, a bit of coaching as well with Fitzroy Stars in the Northern Football League, um, playing coaching. So, um, And also work at St Kilda Football Club as an um, Indigenous liaison officer and a um, bit of coaching and development. Back in 2012, what was your role at Essendon? Um, sort of on-field, my role was, I think I was a utility, you know, so playing any position, um, and I guess you know, my role off-field as well was, um, you know, we had a few Indigenous young players at the club and you know, I was like a mentor, big brother figure to those guys as well. I met with Nathan in his house where he is mentoring and housing a number of young Indigenous boys. 
He's opened his home to the young students who have travelled from all around the country to get a better education, but to also give the game of AFL their absolute all. It was a wet day. You may hear some rain and thunder in the background. Did you feel like that you were part of a bigger game, a bit of bigger political game? Oh, definitely. You know, you could, I could see that coming a mile away. And I guess being an Indigenous person in this country and, you know, whenever it comes to government and, you know, you sort of look at you know, how Indigenous people are being treated and it just felt like that, um, you know, going down that same path. There have always been times, you know, where they've sort of blown things up out of proportion, you know, because they want to try and get the public on their side. Before we get into the details of the report, there are a few acronyms and names that we need to explain. ASADA was the the Australian um, outpost of the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA. All, most Australian sports have to be WADA compliant. That, that is, that they sign up to the anti-doping regulations that that govern these sports. And in exchange for that, they're, they're eligible for government funding. Asada had been working on a couple of tip-offs that players had been injected with something. And they had been told by customs that there was an increase in the imports of performance-enhancing drugs. They were a small agency with a handful of investigators. They were finding the players were not interested in talking with them because they didn't want to let their team down. The culture of the team was working against the investigation. A, a, an outstanding group of investigators worked in ASADA. An outstanding group of lawyers worked in ASADA. Um, some, some really quality, quality people working on some very difficult matters. Things started to move a little faster when ASADA partnered with the Australian Crime Commission, a much more powerful body. With some extra investigation, it started to seem that the allegations were correct. There was more to this than a few athletes trying to get ahead. It looked like entire teams had been regularly injected with peptides. These are human growth hormones that speed up your body's recovery. They are known to be used by bodybuilders because they have less side effects than steroids. And they are illegal in Australia without a doctor's prescription. The report that was released on February 7, 2013 contains some of these allegations and a few more. There was a lot of focus on the ASADA issues um, and ASADA's role in sports integrity is or was relatively narrow. But what we saw in play was something significantly broader than what was in ASADA's remit. Potential breaches of the Customs Act potential breaches of the Medicare Act, potential breaches of Pharmaceutical Benefits Acts, potential breaches of workplace safety, issues around informed consent, issues around appropriate medical supervision, um, issues around record keeping, issues around the use of pharmaceuticals for where there's no clinical need, um, issues around drugs not approved for human use, as well as issues around prohibited substances from an ASADA point of view. Listed off like that, along with the potential links to organised crime and match-fixing, it does sound like a pretty dark moment. One question that has been raised since 
is whether the outcomes of the later investigation lined up with what was in this report. I don't think that they'd done their homework. Uh, we, in hindsight, that, that press conference shouldn't have been conducted in the way it was because I don't think they, they knew nearly enough. Because if you're going to accuse, in, in our case, Essendon of cheating, you know, they, I think they underestimated the vehemence of the, of the way that the community down here and the media reacted to this, which is like, so you're saying that the most famous sporting club in, in Australia, one of, uh, with this famous coach, James Hurd, this big-time businessman, David Evans, the chairman, and all these players, Joe Watson, the Brownlow medalist, you know, have cheated. Um, I think they just felt as though they could drop that bomb and there wouldn't be any consequences. We had a sense that it was going to be a big deal. We had a sense that it was going to attract significant media attention. Um, We had a sense that it would be a bit of a shock to a lot of people what the Crime Commission had found. Um, But for those of us that had been working in that space, it was almost a moment of transition to pivot from things that were happening under the veil of confidentiality to us being able to then work in public and collaboratively to try and build up an improved integrity framework. And then law enforcement could do what they did and then Asada and could do what they did as well. I think, yeah, um, it's look like they'll just big note themselves, to be honest, and trying to, you know, make themselves look good and, yeah. You called it a shit show earlier. Yeah, that's what it looked like, to be honest. Can you explain that more? What do you mean? Was it just the announcement or it was what it was opening up? What was the shit show? Yeah, I guess to me it just looked like, you know, all this sort of um, making all this noise and not thinking about, you know, the people that it's going to hurt, you know, and that's that was, I guess, the disappointing thing. Was there ever a discussion of the pros and cons of either, you know, having a big announcement versus let's just, you know, make this smaller and keep more control of it? Um, not, not that I'm aware of. Um, I suspect that, you know, I know everyone's got views about the day and the press conference. Whether or not it would have changed anything to the way that, you know, history now tells us what's happened since that day and today. If I don't know if not holding the press conference would have changed anything. Can you take us back to um, the week leading up to the release of the report and paint a picture of, you know, when it was decided that all of the CEOs would be involved in, you know, the, I guess, the releasing or the announcement of that report? Yeah, Um The week before, there were a couple of meetings with all the CEOs of sports um, uh, and briefings that were were led by the Crime Commission. Um, And uh, I was present at at a couple of those. Um, I I don't recall, you know, the explicit time a decision was made to bring everyone to Canberra. It was always there, I suspect. Do you remember who contacted the CEOs? It could well. I think it might have been me. Yeah. Do you, do you remember their, having that conversation with them? Were they willing? Were they hesitant? Um, 
I, I think they were all willing once they understood. You know, there, there might have been one or two who would rather not have been part of it. So there the CEO stood, some of the most powerful people in Australian sport, preparing for an investigation that looked like it was going to rock all of their codes. After the break, we will look at who was really impacted by this announcement and the role the sporting bodies and media played in the fallout. Let's look a bit more at what the players, clubs and coaches were being accused of. Players themselves say they don't know for sure what was going on with their own bodies. Well, I guess, you know, nothing's ever really been proven. Um, there's been, ever never been any actual facts. You know, I remember at that time, you know, the, the leadership group, you know, we signed, we signed off on a, a document that said that everything we took was Asada and WADA um, approved. And so we always believed that, you know, the, the program we went through was, um, was safe and, um, you know, legal. I can't imagine how that feels, that you sign something that you believe is, you know, accurate and binding and everything else, and then this blows up. I can't imagine how that feels. Oh, I guess, um, you know, it's just something that, you know, we've, we've had to sort of, you know, just get on with. Um, my, my own view is that the, the players were the ultimate victims throughout. Um, and I, I feel terribly sorry for the young men in this, these instances, the young men who were involved in this um, in a, a trusting environment. Um, and I think that that's the, the, the hardest part of this whole exercise to deal with. Not only had players been given signed documents ensuring them the injections were legal, there's also a limit to how much a player will question their club. Trust is intrinsic in a sporting body. You, know, you get there as an 18-year-old and you're pretty much just told what to do. You know, every minute of the day, um, you know, you've got professionals in fitness, in weights, in diet, uh, football, and you, I guess you, you, know, you trust you trust them, and so you know you sort of hand it all over, and you just you know you just go with the flow, and um, you know you get told to, to work as hard as you can, and, and you know you'll you'll be rewarded. So you know that's that's the environment of an AFL club. Players don't dispute that there was an injection program, but they have disputed that they knew that there were any illegal substances being used. Uh, no matter what you say about what they took, um, it was a reckless. Um, shambolic injections program where, you know, they had um, players being injected, sometimes ad hoc. You actually had um, officials from the front office lining up to be injected with some of these, like, tanning drugs. And so, yes, the, the Essendon was rightly um, punished for, for, for that, those governance findings. But when you, when you then say, but were these drugs performance-enhancing, which is really what the... That what was being alleged on that day, the blackest day, um, the jury's well and truly out on that one, in my view. Performance-enhancing drugs are always being manufactured more quickly than they can be made illegal, and tests are developed too slowly to pick those drugs up. 
In fact, as part of their investigations, ASADA had paid for a European company to develop a test for the drugs. But the samples were too old to get a definitive result. Well, we didn't have Asinin players or Cronulla players failing a drug test. This was a, a circumstantial case. It's been alleged that WADA's stance against Essendon was about more than whether these players and coaches were guilty. Some say it became an international test case for WADA and national bodies using investigations rather than tests to prove guilt of players. Probable cause, that will, yeah, that's what it was. You know, did you understand that at the time? Did you understand the international pressure and what all of no, that meant? I, I didn't have a clue about all that sort of stuff. You know, why would I? I'm not a, I don't work in that, that space, that, I'm not a lawyer. And, and looking back at it, I should have had my own legal counsel that were giving me this information. But all I had was the, the football club and to a certain degree the, the players association. And I guess, you know, it just wasn't good enough. When you went back home to Hayward, could you see the effect that the report and the allegations and the process around that had had on your family? Um, yeah, I think more out of their concern for my, I guess, welfare and um, mental health. Um, and that was a big reason why I wanted to go home and just to sort of, I guess, connect back to country, connect back to culture and connect back with family and elders. You know, because I was hurt at the time and, um, you know, I guess needed that love. You know, for, for myself, you know, I guess the biggest um, disappointing thing for me was, you know, having, you know, the, the younger you know, Indigenous players there and, um, you know, the guys that I was sort of, I guess, mentoring and, um, you know, go through this program as well and, and, I guess, see them get being impacted. That was something that... I guess really um, impacted on myself a fair bit and you know, still sort of you know, got to live with that today. The impacts on the players are well documented, but of course they are not alone. We know the coaches were also slammed by fans and even more by the media. You know, you had that almost daily footage of the media packet out in front of James Hurd's Turak home, didn't you, where he'd come out... Mm. <laughs> And drive to work, and it, you know, and and the human toll actually of that, um, which is really the flow-on effect of what we're talking about. This press conference, let's get this out there. Um, you know, that James Heard attempted his own life. We know what happened to Mark mm-hmm. Bomber Thompson. The play, Joe Watson lost his Brownlow. And when you talk about, you know, these clubs, it's like a religion, the AFL and the NRL. In Melbourne and, in, and NRL in yeah, Sydney. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't help but stand in the shoes of those die-hard fans mm. and oh, yeah. think what that must have felt. They must have felt like they were being cheated on. Yeah. And I think it's a bit of a lifelong sort of barb that will be thrown at Essendon supporters you know, yeah. <laughs> that your, your club cheated. And um, and as a sports fan, um, and as sports fans, I say that we deserve better than what we got, the way it was presented to us. Because I think you'd want to have a pretty black and white case to put to us. But, you know, in some some sense, the investigations hadn't really even begun. Certainly the the investigations and exactly what was happening at Essendon. You know, those players hadn't even been interviewed yet. Um, So, yes, I say it was very much about politics. 
um, and then it became very much about self-interest. And you know, you knew that self-interest would be looking after itself in all the different quarters. You know, you had the AFL, you had the NRL, you had Essendon, you yep. had the individuals, you had Asada, you had Wada. Everyone was the government. Everyone at some stages, I think the government was saying, "Can we just shut this down, please?" Well, you can't. You've, you've just opened up Pandora's box. Yeah, can't put the lid back on. No. It's important to note that while we as sports fans heard a lot about Essendon and Cronulla at the time, more clubs were named in the report. But like any big story, what we saw was carefully curated. It wasn't just Essendon and Cronulla, there was multiple clubs. In the end, it was cleverly pigeonholed into those two clubs by various forces. As the investigation played out, there were a few names that kept popping up in the media the main one being Stephen Dank. Dank is a biochemist who worked as a sports scientist at a number of AFL and NRL clubs, including Essendon and Cronulla. Isn't it interesting that Stephen Dank, who was the sports scientist at the middle of all this, we've only just sort of mentioned for the first time, um, he's the guy, the common link, one of the common links between the, the two sporting codes. Do you think the story's bigger than just dank, though? Like, is it oh, is this absolutely. far more reaching? Oh, the use of drugs? The use of drugs and the story. Like, I feel like we sort of got very focused on Essendon yeah. taking peptides. Yeah, but that was deliberate. That was what, uh, like I said before, that's what they wanted you to think. But, but, but... Who? The AFL? I think, um, in the end, I think everyone who was involved was pretty happy to contain it to Essendon. Mm. <laughs> but we know for um, a fact that Dank had moved on and was beginning work at um, Melbourne, that Stephen Dank had provided some substances to Geelong. And, and I, let me say, I'm, it's not we're not accusing those clubs no. of anything, but it's just that, that these people had worked there. But there wasn't an appetite to scrutinise it. But the one thing I would say, some of the practices that we taking place yes in a lesser role but at those clubs were sort of those practices were um, portrayed in different ways at Essendon as oh that's a precursor to doping well they didn't say that about certain activities that were happening at the other clubs there were also five other NRL clubs named in the report some say it's possible the issues we have heard about may have stretched further than we know even today there was a lot that was in the report Um, and I suspect that there were a lot of sports that could well have had um, problematic activities in their ranks at the time maybe not to the same extent but it was a good opportunity for everyone to you know a little bit of a wake-up call if you like to have a look at their operations and and make sure that the safeguards are in place. So we were hearing about part of this story and maybe we still don't know all of what transpired. Let's look at who was managing the story we were hearing. To start with, the sporting codes. The NRL and AFL actually approached the allegations completely differently. This in itself is a very complicated part of the story and it begins before the press conference even happened. We'd already had our blackest day because Essendon had self-reported to the AFL and had this extraordinary press conference at AFL House um, two days prior 
maybe even three, can't be sure, I should know that, but um, where Essendon had come across this information that they were about to be investigated. Now, that in itself is a story which there was lots of allegations made about a tip-off that was made to Essendon. The club came forward two, two days before this blackest day and basically said, we're guilty of something, we don't know what to do with substance abuse. Now, this all played out over the following years, but essentially the AFL was accused of tipping Essendon off before the release of the report and pressuring them to stand up and take the heat. That would have been illegal because the information was confidential. The AFL has denied that tip-off. The AFL responded in its very sophisticated, um, I say arrogant manner um, to deal with it, whereas NRL was a bit more sort of less sophisticated in the way it handled it. But as it turned out, that was probably the better strategy. Cronulla didn't do a hell of a lot, waited for Asada to come to them. They took a five or six week penalty in the end and actually won a premiership a couple of years later. Um, whereas if you look at Essendon, I think the AFL's own sophistication and hubris, um, they're pretty good at crisis management. But on this one, I think they outsmarted themselves right. and they ran into WADA as well. I think they felt that they could take Asada along using their political connections a fair way along of what they wanted. But when WADA got involved, it was um, it was game over. They tried to control well, a they... very uncontrollable beast. Yeah. If WADA went to an actual proper court, I would have got thrown out. Mm. Yeah. Does that play over and over for you? Do you really uh, look, sit I've on that? moved on from it now and... Um, the the football club, you know, Essendon and um, you know, Xavier Campbell, CEO, you know, he, he did a really good job on, on, I guess, making those amends with the players. And I felt, um, yeah, once once we did that, you know, sort of moved on from it. Um, you know, my, my son, my older son and, and my younger son are, are training in the Essendon Father and Son Academy. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's still a, a great club and, um, you know, we still wish it to, to be have that success. Among other things, the AFL pulled Essendon out of the 2013 finals in an attempt to take control of the situation. Eventually, the 34 Essendon players landed two-year suspensions from WADA. In 2014, the 2011 Cronulla squad were offered one-year bans if they pled guilty to unknowingly taking a banned substance. The bans were to be backdated becoming only a few games off the field. All but five took the deal. The five that held out came to a similar agreement with the NRL in 2016. That agreement was accepted by WADA. It's also important to note that the coaches were not unscathed. Essendon coach James Hurd and Cronulla coach Shane Flanagan were both hit with one-year bans. No one quite predicted um, exactly how things played out in terms of the particular investigations in, in rugby league and in the AFL. Um, no one was could predict that, and that's not a criticism. It's just no, no one could predict what went on um, because everyone was learning at the same time. Um, but I, I sense there was a, a, a generalised anxiety um, about what's this mean. 
the AFL and NRL who were most impacted by the event said, you know, they're powerful bodies. Is there an arrogance to their their power? Um, no. Um, I wouldn't use the word arrogance. I would use the word there's a confidence. Um, they are both organisations that I enjoyed very much working with. Um, stereotypes exist sometimes because they're real. And in this world of, you know, sports, politics, um, you know, you, you can sense that sometimes there can be confrontations. Um, the discussions and the interactions I had with both codes were almost always, or in fact, I can't recall things being otherwise, very honest, very open, at times quite tough. Those sports, NRL, AFL and, and the other major sports, um, do their jobs exceptionally well in providing a product that the community values so much. A lot of what people think they knew is what AFL down here would have liked them to have thought because the AFL's control over the football media is so profound that you know, they're very clever at getting stories into the press that are advantageous to the sort of the public line that they would they would like to, to have out in play. Did I read that you've lost some privileges in reporting in the AFL? Is that right? Oh, look, um, right. in 2013, I, right. I, I had my accreditation to the finals um, denied because uh, they didn't like <clears throat> the things that I was saying about their... Um, their conduct, I suppose, but um, with this specific issue. Well, that was the year twenty thirteen yeah, yeah, yeah. that it. Um, so controlling the media was part of controlling the story. Absolutely. Controlling the actual investigation. If you look closely at any scandal involving the AFL, um, certain stories are always planted, leaked, um, farmed out um, as part of a sort of a process of. Um, getting the football public and the general public to think about things in certain ways. So you not having accreditation to the finals, was that just a warning of like...? Um, yeah, probably. Well, I don't know what it was, but it was... Um, but I got my accreditation the following year, so... <laughs> do, you, do you ever think it would be a lot easier just to write about Dusty kicking four on the weekend? <laughs> I certainly do. <laughs> But, you know, like, um, I believe um, one of the f uh, motivations of my book, so I'm, I'm fascinated with, the, with the, the policing of integrity. Does that sort of journalism take its toll? Um, it probably has. <laughs> it probably has. Um, but um, it's the job is, is, is how I see it. It doesn't make you very popular. Yeah. I remember an old editor of mine once said, you don't get into journalism to make friends. On the role of the media, the media yeah. play a, an outstanding role in support of the major sporting codes. Um, it's no coincidence that a lot of people go straight to the back page when they buy a newspaper. Um, it sells copy. Um, and they played a very important role throughout all the investigations, um, there were moments where there was 
personal collateral damage done to individuals on the way and I think in part because of the role that the media might have played in pursuit of some of the issues and I think that's that's regretful but that's a balance that journalists need to make every day. Oh look I mean you know the media really blew it up um you know it was just for me I, I you know stopped sort of I guess um reading the papers, watching the news, you know, a long time ago, you know, because of this, because there was just so much, I guess, bullshit out there. And so, you know, they've got a job to do, I guess, and um, I guess give the public what they want. But, you know, you sort of want it to be, you know, fair and, and factual and, and the truth. Do you think it was fair and factual, what they were reporting? Um, not always. Yeah, not always. Some bits were, some bits weren't. Do you think we lost sight of the bigger picture in terms of the codes and in terms of what was happening with, you know, the drugs themselves because the media took it in a direction that protected the sporting bodies? Um, well, I think so. I think that there were some sections of the media that didn't protect the sporting bodies um, and the sporting bodies came in for a significant amount of criticism. Now we have the benefit of hindsight. We can look back on these times, the traumas and the fears and the allegations, and we can ask, was it worth it? Were there benefits that outweigh the costs? God help us, we don't ever get another story like Essendon and Cronulla, but you'd probably be naive to think that something like that won't happen again. I think what it did do was it just put the brakes on recklessness at footy clubs and, and athletes to say, hey, if you are going to go down this road, well, they're watching now. And so I think that was a positive to come yeah. out of it. But did you need all that carnage <laughs> to, to justify that end? I don't think so. We do know, that, and I, I had heard that not long after the press conference, there were significant reductions in the importation of inappropriate substances. Um, so, you know, it, it did have a, a, an immediate effect in some regard. Yeah, I think it's just a, a lesson, um, put all sports on notice to, I guess, you know, be better in this area um, with drugs in sport. Uh, I know the AFL's definitely improved a lot. Do you think it was worth it? Um, well, I think it was blown up out of proportion um, from the media and the, the government. Um, I think that, yeah, that that impact had a, a lot more hurt on on the players more so. You know, there could have been a better way of going about it. It's true that the blackest day in its aftermath did trigger a series of changes in Australian sports structures. The NRL introduced a new integrity unit. The AFL increased their resources to integrity units. ASADA was given more power and then wrapped into a new federal sports integrity unit. I think that the sports integrity framework for Australian sports is infinitely better than it was in 2010 and I'm certainly not suggesting that it all was as a result 
of what happened um, in 2011, 12, 13. I'm not suggesting that was a cause and effect. I think it was just all part of the natural evolution of the, the way that sports deal with their most precious commodity and their most precious members being the people who entertain us every weekend on sporting fields. And do you look back and go, yeah, we did a good job. We did what we needed to do. Um, I think, yes. Um, I think it was, it was a difficult period of time. I'm not suggesting it was handled perfectly, but there is no specific step that I would say that was in my control that I wish I hadn't done. You spoke about the players being victims and we've spoken, you know, we've touched on the fact that some individuals, it was an incredibly trying time and, and hurt a lot of people. Um, do you think, looking back now, do you think it was worth it? I think there, there's some incredibly sad and tragic stories. Um, what's the alternative? Um, is one, you know, and a crystal ball and 2020 hindsight, you know, all of these things, you know, we don't have complete access to. <laughs> I would encourage him to read the chapter Cashed Up Bogans in the Boys Club and uh, love to sit down and have a beer with him and um, and just run through his uh, recollections of, of it because it was a dog's breakfast. Is, was and always will be. Where did they fail? Right at the start. That bit. That was just the first time they failed. <laughs> I mean, what they tried to do beyond that was sort of cling to this idea that they had a watertight case and that, and that their, their conduct throughout was appropriate. Um, but at time after time, that was shown to be... There, there isn't a right and wrong party in all of this. That's the point that I, um, I, I tried to make about these two sort of storylines that collided like road trains on the Nullarbor, bang! And once they did, it just spun off into so many different directions. Um, but um, no one could tell you that the way that this whole investigation was conducted was the right way. What do you think is the most important thing that we understand as footy fans, as people who love the sport, um, whichever sport that is, what do you think we need to understand? You know, the one thing that I've always said about this story is we've never had the Royal Commission that we deserved, some sort of independent inquiry to um, get to the bottom of this once and for all. What, what the hell happened here? Um, and the reason we haven't had that is because of politics, because neither side of, of um, the political divide, Labor or or the coalition wanted because they both had their fingerprints all over this case. So that's why I say it's about politics. The reason we never got to the truth was about politics. I'm going to keep fighting until, you know, clear my name, you know, because I still believe that we were innocent and, yeah. So when you say you're still fighting to clear your name, what does that look like? Yeah, there's a, um, some stuff going on at federal court at the moment, so... Um, just trying to uh, get further information that's been withheld uh, from certain parties. So, you know, you know, there's still stuff going on behind the scenes, and um, you know, and, and that 
in the end, you know, the, the truth will come out. You honestly believe that? Yeah, yeah, I do. It's, um, yeah, it's just it's what happens, you know. We did reach out to a number of other key players in this story to give them an opportunity to share their perspective, including the CEO of the AFL at the time, Andrew Demetrio, and the sports minister at the time, Kate Lundy. They politely declined to take part. It had the biggest negative impact on sport since the blackest day. COVID-19 robbed us of our anchor, live sport. When it returned, it didn't look the same. Up next, Emma takes us inside the COVID-19 hubs with AFL great Jack Revolt, Swifts coach Bryony Akel and NBA player Jose Calderon. We hear the inside story of the lead-up and life inside. The Long Haul is brought to you by Ranieri & Co and Headline Productions. Our host is Emma Murray. This episode was produced by me, Liz Keane and Simon Portis. Editing was by me. Theme music was created by Kenneth Lample. Special thanks to Nathan Lovett-Murray, Richard Eccles, Mick Warner, Nick Murray and Brendan Schwab. Archival audio was sourced via Australian Broadcasting Corporation Library Sales.